Today we uh, get to celebrate some baby dedications. We're going to be praying for and asking a blessing over and making a commitment to. I want to make sure that we as a church family who hear this, that when we bring children up to dedicate them to the Lord, we are making a commitment to these children and to the Lord. All right? Super cute today. How are we? You doing good? I love it. All right. And so, church, as we do this, I know they're so precious. Um, we, we always have a gift for them. We have a children's Bible because our heartbeat is to see them grow into fully dedicated followers of Christ as they go through their years. And so, ways that we do that, we, we lead by our example and we live an example in front of them. We provide environments that are designed for their age and for their understanding of God to grow in the children's ministry, through youth ministry, into adulthood. And we as a church, we see these little lives and we commit that we're going to make sure we invest in them. And we do that through our time. We do that through our giving. We do that through our example. And so church, that's the commitment that we're going to make today. All right. I have Emerson's first. All right, Emerson. I have a little gift for you. Is that okay? All right. Um, First uh, questions for you guys. Will you commit to see your children raised in a house that is committed to church attendance, committed to reading scripture together, committed to praying together, and committing, committed to personally live an example of being a disciple to your children? Yes. Will. Church, will you commit to providing a place for these children to grow in their faith to, by your example, by your giving, by your, your time and your volunteering? Will you provide a place for them to grow in their faith? Amen. All right, Emerson, I'm going to pray for you. Is that okay? I'll put my hand on you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Emerson, and we thank you for the fact that you have every one of her days um, laid out before you, and you see them. And we pray that we would get to see her grow into a fully fully devoted follower of Christ because of the example and the life of her parents and her church family. We ask your blessing, your protection, and your favor over every, every day. And we, we pray that we'd be able to see the gifts that you've placed in her grow and be used in this church and in this community. We thank you for the amazing things you're going to do through her life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Emerson, that's for you. All right. Am I allowed to pick you up? What do you think? No? No, that's okay. <laughs> Got to try. Got to try. All right. All right. That's all right. Well, she's all about the present, though. She's got that. She knows what's up with presents. You got it? That's uh, pretty heavy. All right. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you now, Willow, okay? All right. You ready? All right. Lord, we thank you so much for Willow, and we thank you for the plans that you have for her life. We pray that you would protect her, that your favor would be upon her, that she would learn to follow you and love you from an early age because of the example of her family and because of the example of her church family. We thank you for the great things you're going to do through her life. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Can we celebrate that? That's awesome. Thank you guys for doing that today. All right. We are into week number three of our series called How to Neighbor. And this series is one that is so close to the heart of God, but it is also so simple that it's a little bit insulting at times. And I want to acknowledge that tension, but I also want to identify the truth that when we struggle in our faith, it's not usually because of some complicated theology. 
It's usually because we're struggling to take that simple step that God has called us to take. And so this message, this series, it's, it's, it's easy, but it's difficult. Week one, we looked at the fact and we acknowledged together as a church that it doesn't matter what color your skin is, what color your hair is, what color your eyes are, what color your toothbrush is. It doesn't matter. We're one family, one race created in the image of God. And so we cannot let barriers be put up between us and other people who are created in the image of God because their culture or anything about them is different than us. And we, we, we committed as a church that, that that is how we see it. That's how we understand it from Scripture. Last week, we looked at the truth that we as the church are called to be part of the solution to poverty, that we are supposed to give people a hand up, that, that we don't see them as a project to be fixed, but we see them as an opportunity to serve because when we serve even the least of these, Jesus takes that as us serving him. And that is an incredible and challenging truth that Jesus personalizes the way that we treat the least in our society as the way that we're treating him. So we know that we are called to be part of the solution to poverty in our city, and not just in our city or our nation, but throughout the world. That's the calling of the church of God. And that was last week. This week, we're getting into an area that affects every single street in Cape Coral. And, and I can tell you that wherever there's people living, this issue is living there as well. Today we're going to deal with the issue of loneliness and isolation. And in an ever-connected world, it seems almost hard to believe, do people still feel lonely and isolated? And I know some of us sitting in here today, it's like that's the struggle that we're walking through right now. When I, when I began researching some of this, both biblically, but also just in our culture and in our societies, of, of how loneliness is impacting lives, some of the results were interesting because at least I'll tell you, I may have, you know, had this, this false notion that when I think of, you know, what age bracket identifies as being the loneliness, I think of the widow. I think of the widower. But I actually have this graph from a study that BBC did <coughs> that shows the percentage of people in the survey who said they feel often, they feel lonely often or very often. The highest bracket was 16 to 24. And that kind of surprised me because, you know, the, the young generation, they're always busy, they're always connected, they're always chatting with friends. But as the study went out, it kind of reaffirmed something that we already speculated about, that online connections aren't as meaningful, aren't as fulfilling as real world ones. And there's some different factors that are leading into this truth that, you know, loneliness is experienced a little bit higher in the younger age group. And part of that is the, the change in family structures. Families aren't staying together as long anymore. The, the fact that it used to, that there's more mobility in families. It used to be that there'd be multiple generations all living in the same city, and that's gone away too. And then you get into the proliferation and the time invested in online interaction that's not quite as meaningful. And, and we see this reality that even young people who are, Surrounded by all this interaction, they still say, I feel like I'm missing the most meaningful relationships. I feel like I'm missing out on something. I feel alone. And the fact is the church is called to be part of the solution to loneliness, to isolation, because we weren't designed to do life alone. 
We were designed to live in community from the very beginning of creation throughout the Old Testament. We see this truth when God created all, all the, the different parts of creation and he created man and man did not yet have a, a helpmate, have a wife. He looked at a man standing alone and he said, this is not good. We weren't meant to do life in isolation. And I know many of you guys are struggling through a sense of loneliness just because the statistics tell us that in this room, there's going to be multiple people who are struggling with loneliness, struggling with a feeling of depression and anxiety and isolation. And, and so I, I think that this is an important subject to talk to because even if it's not in your household, I'll tell you it's on your street, probably the next door to you in one of the houses. And so we have to find some practical ways to encourage and help these people And we also want to see a picture of God's heart for the broken, for the hurting that have been living in isolation. One of my favorite passages to look at on this topic is found in Matthew chapter 8. And we'll project the words on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the gospel of Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the NLT, it says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, A man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. I'm going to pause there as we get into this passage because we don't deal with leprosy too often. It's important to kind of go through some of the characteristics of the the disease. First, culturally, someone with leprosy was seen to be as stricken by God. It's not just by, they're not seen like genetics or, or you just happen to get sick. It's seen as this is God's judgment placed on you for sin in your life or sin in your family's life. And so this leprosy and this suffering that you have, you deserve it. And that's part of the cultural picture of how you treat a leprous person. You don't have to really worry about being too kind to them because they deserve what they got here. And the other thing, physically, the life expectancy of someone who contracted the disease was about 10 years, which seems like, okay, it's something that they, they last for a while, but it is a slow and terrible slope to death. Their, their skin, it begins to almost turn into the, these scabs, almost like a cuticle that flake up and they cause itching. And as they're itched, they break off exposing flesh, which kind of repeats this process. And the disease also would come with a smell of the flesh as it decayed. And I'm not going to go too much more graphic than that, but I want you to know, like, this was not some light little thing. And with all of that physical discomfort, with all of that, it was considered to be contagious. So they would be removed from their household, removed from the the village or the city that they lived in, and they would be put out into a leper colony with other people who had the disease, and they would be left there to to basically slowly move towards death. And so, okay, that's the intellectual. We understand that's what happens to the body, and that's where they have to live. But just try for a minute to picture emotionally where that would put you as a person. To no longer be able to touch your family. To no longer be able to do the job that made you feel useful and made you feel accomplished, that provided food for your family. It takes you away from all of that and puts you in a place of isolation where you slowly suffer and pass away. Where, where if you happen to be coming by a group of people, you would have to call out that you're unclean so that they stay away. Crowds always kept you away. You were considered judged by God going down this road towards death. 
that emotional place of isolation, I, I can't even fathom it. And that's not to make light of the suffering, the anxiety, and the loneliness that people in our culture go through. But I just want to say, as we put the two next to each other, understand how severe this one was. And in the passage, it includes that truth that it's almost eschatological. There's a large crowd that's following Jesus. That makes sense. He's Jesus. Crowds follow him. But then you have to understand that through the eyes of the leper, there's something in that person's heart that when he saw Jesus, something clicked because, I mean, he calls him Lord in the passage, which is not something that was acceptable Like, socially, you can't just call a person that. There is something in this person's heart that when he saw Jesus, he knew this is the Messiah. This person has the capacity and the ability to heal me. And so when he saw Jesus, he knew, I need to get to that person. But there would have been this anxiety, this stress that's felt. But I have to get through that crowd to get to him. That crowd doesn't want me around. They don't want me around them. They don't want me around the least of them. They definitely don't want me around the leader, this this great rabbi, this Messiah who has shown up on the scene. They don't want me to get anywhere close to him. But something in his heart said, I I have to go. I have to try. I'm going to tell you, large crowds plus a leper, it's a bad situation. It's stress for the crowd. It's stress for him. But then the leper makes this statement, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we get a glimpse into the belief of who he had, of who he thought Jesus was. And if there's any kind of thought hanging around in your head or people try to make the argument that Jesus was just a really good teacher, this is another one of those instances where it really removes the ability for us to just say, Jesus was just a good teacher. He wasn't God. He wasn't Messiah. He he wasn't the fullness of God in flesh. He was just a nice guy. You can't really say that because in this situation, he is called Lord. He, He is called God. And in this situation, he doesn't correct him. And beyond that, he says, I am willing. And so any Pharisee, any religious ruler, anyone who's educated in the temple, as they're hearing this conversation of the term that was used by the leper to refer to Jesus, there would have been anxiety in their head of saying, hey, you can't, you can't call someone that. You shouldn't even be here. And then the anxiety probably would have rose when this, this rabbi, when this, this self-proclaimed Messiah said, I am willing And didn't just say he's willing, didn't just not correct him. He reached out and he put his hand on him. Which this this would have been the first time that this leper received physical touch since he knew that he had the disease. This would have made the people in the crowd shudder a little bit. Now he's infected. Now Now he's unclean. But to their shock and to their amazement, Jesus showed that he had the authority to say such things and he was healed in that moment. And and this is an incredible instant, but at the same time when we hear this story, there's part of us that says, man, well, that, that would be nice, you know, if in my issues, in my sickness, in my worries, in the thing that I have going in my life, it would be great if I could just walk up to Jesus and be like, Lord, will you do something about this? And and just specifically speaking to those of us who say, you know, I'm part of the church. I believe fully in Jesus Christ. I I trust him for my salvation and my life. I believe in God. 
for those of us who've made that statement, but there's some sense of us that says, man, I wish I had the physical interaction with Jesus. What scripture actually tells us in John 16, 7, and this is Jesus speaking, he actually says, I have to be, I have to go. I can't stay here with you guys because I am going to send you something better than having me. And, and, and this, in the way that we live our life, in the way that we try to live on mission, I feel like we've shied away from this truth that Jesus spoke when, when he said in John 16, 7, he said, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And, and this is hard for us to grasp because quite honestly, in the church, we maybe haven't seen the Holy Spirit do a whole lot yet. Or we haven't asked the Holy Spirit to really work in our lives or given him the space to work in our lives. And so we've lived this life kind of out on our own strength. We've lived spiritually our life just doing things and trying to achieve. And we haven't let God really do anything amazing in our life. And so one of the things that I want to tell you is that we should see the Holy Spirit at work in our life that's greater than the works that we saw Jesus do. Maybe that's challenging. Maybe that's compelling. Maybe that sounds weird to say, okay, are we becoming one of those weird churches now? Um, let me tell you this. We don't see the Holy Spirit work much in our life because we don't step out in obedience much in our life. And I've seen this within myself. I've seen this within people that I've seen God do tremendous things through, through my mentors as well. That there's always this connection. There's always this correlation it's like, God, I really want you to, to work in my marriage. Holy Spirit, will you just do something in my marriage because we're struggling? And God puts on your heart, okay, I want you to take this step. You say, oh, you know, I just want to see you work. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I don't want to have to change anything. I don't want to risk anything. I don't want to have to serve anyone, but I just want to see you work in miraculous ways. But I'm sorry, that's just not how God does it. But when he says, I want you to take this step, he will meet you as your foot touches the ground on that step. When he says, I want you to step out in your faith, he will meet you there. And those are the situations in which we see God do things that we can't explain. That's when we get to see God's power at work in a way where we never could have pulled it off on our own. But it's always connected to our obedience. It's always connected to our willingness to risk. Because this leper, I mean, he, he's living out in separation from everyone else, but he gets the sense that Jesus can do something about this, but everything within his cultural norms said, I'm not allowed to go into that crowd. I will, I will get yelled at. I might get things thrown at me if I try to go and approach those people, let alone approach the, the person who's at the center of it all. But there's something in their heart that said, it doesn't matter, I have to, I have to go towards him. I have to get to him. I have to talk to him. I have to ask him to help. And, and, you know, if you're someone who has been struggling with depression, anxiety, and loneliness, and you set foot into church today, I want to acknowledge, I know how hard it is when you're struggling with those feelings to go to somewhere where there's going to be a group and a crowd of people. But I believe that God will meet you here as you take those steps. As God has put on your heart, hey, I want you to go get back into a church, and you took those steps to get here, I believe that God is going to meet you in that. And you're going to feel and sense his spirit at work in your life. But this translates to so many other things. That, that when you know this is where I need God to work, God might say, okay, and this is the step. This is, the, this is your next piece. This is your next move. This is your act of obedience. And as you do that, as you take that step, that's when we see God work. Because 
If he, if he just stayed in his bed, if he just stayed away, I don't, I don't think we'd be reading this story about him. I don't think he would have had this amazing interaction with Jesus. I don't think he would have experienced this miracle. I don't think he would have experienced this freedom from his isolation and loneliness. He wouldn't have experienced this restoration to his old life. And the instructions that Jesus gave him after he said, be clean, and immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And there was this push from Jesus, okay, here's the miracle. Now you need to take the steps you need to take to get back to the life you're supposed to be living. And, And it's like piece by piece. It's like God calls us, God draws us to take these different steps of faith. It's not that we just sit and we watch God do stuff, but he has somehow like as though we're ambassadors moving on his behalf, proclaiming his message, living like the kingdom of heaven is right here on earth. He calls us to actions, not just beliefs, but our beliefs should be pushing us to actions. And so the the whole heartbeat of this story is to understand how, how can I be a better neighbor? How can I be a better neighbor? Because God has called us to love him and love our neighbor as ourself. And those are the two things that are so close to his heart. And so how do we do those things? How do we love other people better? Well, first, when we look at people who've been living in isolation, living in loneliness, living with anxiety and depression, there's some simple things that we can do to encourage and to help them. And, you know, I, I would love it if we could just walk in and pray and heal the whole situation. I do believe prayer is part of it. But um, there, there's just, I think, some even more basic things. And like I said at the beginning, these might seem so basic, they're insulting. But I think a lot of times we've made our faith so complicated and we've tried to make it so difficult that it just doesn't ever take any action in our life. And so this is simple, but it's designed to be that. Because I believe the problem in the church today is obedience, not understanding. We understand enough to live for God, but we just don't obey him enough. And that's, that's part of why we're not seeing God do as much in our city as we believe we want him to do. But it starts in our household. It starts in our life. And, and so the church, we, we've, we've made things complicated, but we're going to make this really simple. One of the ways that someone who has been in isolation, who's been living apart from everyone else, one of the ways that we can encourage and help them is that we can love them with touch. And this isn't creepy touch. This isn't weird shoulder rub stuff. Like This is basic. This is a truth that they've shown through all kinds of different studies, everything from premature newborns through the elderly, that physical touch is part of a healthy existence. And so when you encounter someone, and and this is why I'm going here, because sometimes when we see someone who's really depressed, really hurting, us trying to interact with them, it looks like a 20-year-old holding a baby for a first time. And it's like we just don't know what to do, and we're afraid we're going to break the situation, and so we just get rid of it as soon as we can. And so this is the first thing. When someone's hurting, and they've been alone, and they've been depressed, one of the first easiest things you can do is you can give them the pastoral side hug, you, you can shake their hand. And so there's so many people who come to church because this is one of the only places where they get a handshake, a hug, and an interaction from someone who cares about them. I mean, that happens here on a Sunday. But I know on your street, there's people who, you know, they, they come out to put the trash cans out and put the trash cans away. But other than that, you see their garage door shut, you see their front door shut, you see their blinds shut, and you know that they're alone. 
And so when you get a chance to interact with them, you may not know what to do because they are intentionally being closed off because they've been living that for so long. One of the easiest ways you can show them that you care and you can begin to build a bridge where you can share about God's love and share about God's plan is it just starts with, with healthy touch. Uh, some of the interesting things about how significant healthy touch can be, when they did some research on premature babies, um, they're, they're, they had uh, the, the belief that maybe if we increased touch that we would see better growth in them. And they found in preterm newborn babies who received just three 15-minute sessions of touch therapy each day for five to 10 days, they gained 47% more weight than other premature infants who just received standard treatment. I mean, it's amazing how there's a physiological response to touch that promotes growth even in babies. And I'm going to tell you, in America, we have kind of been standoffish because another study that they did on just the way that Americans interact is in an hour-long conversation between two Americans, there's usually at a really enthusiastic point, there's two touches that will happen. There'll be two points of physical contact. When they study other cultures, like, like the French culture, there's 110 in the Puerto Rican culture, there was 180. It sounds like a boxing match to me. I don't know how you talk through that. But there's this truth that there's this affection, there's this touch, and it's healthy for us. It's needed. And this is a good thing for us to understand that we need to give, but this is also a good thing for us to understand that we need. Because if you've been living your life, and you've been drawn back, and you've been separate, and you say, you know what, I don't know when the last time is that someone, you know, gave me a hug, this is not good for you. You're not meant to live life that far alone. And there's part of your physical body that actually will do better when you have these interactions with people. It's simple, but we can love someone who's been hurting just by touch. We, we can love by listening. And we listen to, we often just listen to reply rather than listen to understand. Um, but men, if you're like me, I'm going to help you here. Because when we hear a problem, it's like we need to fix it. That's the whole reason the problem was stated. That's actually not going to fix it. You might actually make it worse when you start offering your suggestions to fix the issue. But if you really want to fix it, all you need to do is listen. Men, that is how we fix it. We, we can just listen to the issue that's going on. Because what the person, when someone's suffering through isolation, anxiety, and depression, a lot of times they just feel like they need to be heard. And so what we can do in those situations, very simple way of someone who we know has been alone, someone who is going through a rough time, we can listen to them and just let them speak. It's interesting because I definitely just, I'm naturally inclined, I'm a pastor, I want to help fix stuff. Like, I'm inclined towards that. But when we look at this interaction that Jesus had on the road to Emmaus, this was after his death and resurrection in Luke 24. I'm just going to paraphrase the passage real quick. But Jesus was walking with these men, and they didn't, they didn't really understand that this was Jesus walking with them. And he said, you know, what's going on with you guys? You seem upset. And this was after the death, before they realized that, that you know, that, that he had resurrected. And they said, are you a stranger to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have been going on? And, and you know what? Jesus was pretty well acquainted with the things that were going on. Like, they were confused about them, but he wasn't confused about them. If there was ever an opportunity where it's like, yes, I, I can tell you about the things that are going on. Like, you think you know, and you think you're going to tell me, but I could really tell you. Like, Jesus could have set them straight in the moment. But he, he lets them go, and he lets them talk, and he asks them questions about it. And eventually he helps them understand, but it's just this good picture that we don't always need to immediately fix to be helpful. And in fact, sometimes the best thing that we can do is we can let people kind of talk 
And then once they feel heard, we can speak, and then they're ready to hear, they're ready to understand, they're ready to see who we really are. And the second just simple, simple way that we can love our neighbor who's hurting, love the person in our life who's hurting when we don't know how to help because things have been so, so hard, we can just listen to them. How are you? I mean, doesn't this change it? It's like we hear how are you all the time. But when you add one more word, really, you understand. When someone asks, how are you? It's good, walking by, see you later. How are you really? That means stop and talk to me, doesn't it? Giving someone the opportunity to share what's really going on in their life, really listening to them. It's one of the ways we can encourage and help someone who's hurting. The third thing is we love with time. Uh, we've so often let the urgent push out the important that, that we've missed opportunities to show God's love to people. Uh, band, if you guys want to make your way up to the stage, I'm going to begin to close this thing out. Uh, we, we love with time. And, and I understand because there's so many things that we should be doing, that we want to be doing, that we feel drawn towards doing. And so when we see a need, we often just kind of move past it because we're like, we don't have time. We see the issue from across the street and we give them the head nod and we duck and we run for cover to get away from it because we don't have time. But we need to begin to make time for people because people matter to God and they should matter to us. My, my grandfather in the early 90s, he had a stroke and it affected him in a major, major way. I mean, he's been in a home since he had it. He lost his ability to speak and he can't write to communicate and he, he can only say one word. And so, I mean, he can't really carry on a conversation. He can't tell you what he's thinking. He can't tell you what he's feeling. He can't tell you what he wants. But, but he's, he's there beneath all that. And he's lost his ability to walk, and so he's confined to a bed. And man, I'm going to tell you, in my life, like I haven't gone to see him as much as I should have. But he, he's in Estero, and since we've been here in Florida, I've gone to see him more. And I wish, I wish I could talk with him. I wish I could hear his stories. I, I wish I, I, I could, you know, listen to him talk about his problems. But that's not, those aren't ways that I can really show my affection to him because he can't talk about those things. But when I sit down in the chair next to him in his home and I spend time with him, I can see the love across his face. I can see the joy across his face. I can see the happiness. And I can't fix anything for him there. I can't, I can't give him any advice that's going to be beneficial. But he knows exactly who I am. And he loves when I spend time with him. And, you know, that, that's the situation with my grandfather. And you might feel like if I go to this person that, that when I think of who I need to encourage, when, if I go to that person, I'm not going to know how to help. You don't have to solve their issues. But just by the act of you spending time with them, they're going to feel loved. They're going to feel valued. And they're going to feel like they matter. And yes, we want people to feel like they matter, but really the heartbeat, the, the, the best thing that we can give to them, the best thing that we want for them is they, we want them to be connected to this God that loves them and has a plan for them. And if we don't know them, if we don't know what they're walking through, if we've never made time for them, we're not going to have a voice into their life. And so th this obedience to, to the call of scripture to love our neighbor, it is intimately connected 
to the call to make disciples of all nations. It's not two separate things, it's one thing. That as we pour our life into the lives of other people, that is how the gospel moves into other households. And so this might, this whole, these three points, they might seem insultingly simple for someone as sophisticated as you, but my question is, have you been doing it? Have you been doing it for your neighbor? Have you been doing it for your coworker? Have you been doing it for the widow or widower across the street? For the 16 to 24 year olds that are around you in your life who seem so busy with social media and Snapchat and life that you would never think they're lonely, but their generation is crying out saying, I need someone. We want to see God work in their lives, but will we take that step? So church, this is the simple challenge. This week, make the call, make the appointment, take the step to go into someone's world who you feel like, you know, they, they seem like they need somebody right now. They seem like they could use an ear to listen to them right now. The simple challenge is that. Make the phone call, go knock on the door, step into the situation. And we know that as we step out in obedience, we get to see the Holy Spirit move in power. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that the person who is struggling with a sickness had the courage and had the faith to move towards you. We thank you that he got to see a miracle. We thank you that he got to see his life restored. We thank you that we got to hear about this amazing encounter that you had with him. Father, I ask that you would write the same kind of story through the testimony of your church in this city that we would step out in obedience and that we would get to see your hand at work in ways of restoration and healing and in love because your church responds to your spirit's leading. So Father, lead us where we need to go. Encourage the hearts of those who are hurting through your people. Continue to teach us how to be a better neighbor. In Jesus' name.